Well, this is our last Sunday in the letters of Paul to the Christians at Thessalonica. Next Sunday, we are going to begin a new series for the month of July on being disciple makers. What are we called to and what does that mean? And you know, as we look together at Paul's second letter to the Christians at Thessalonica, we've noticed how in the first chapter, Paul's focus was on the choices that we make and how those choices will, de- de- will determine the rewards or punishments that are meted out on the day of judgment, on the day of the revelation of Christ. And then in chapter 2, last Sunday, we made note of how there have been many misunderstandings and false teachings concerning the return of Christ. He's coming back one more time. Not a pre-tribulation rapture and then a return again on judgment day. But one return that will be at the end of time. And according to both Paul and the Apostle John, as well as the writer of Hebrews, Jude, and others, by the way, we are living in the last days. In fact... John calls it the last hour. And Paul says that the rebellion of Antichrist is already taking place, though restrained by the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. I also also emphasized last Sunday by means of repetition that the safeguard against deception and the remedy against false teaching is to hold on to the original teaching of the apostles. So, here's my image for today. A map. A map that should represent the truth of how things are. And a compass to know what direction to head. I like how John Stott has characterized or described Scripture. He says that Scripture is both our guiding light in the sense that it reveals, makes known what we are and what we are not and who we are and what we are not doing. And secondly, it's our compass in that it gives us direction. Already in chapter 2, Paul has written about the importance of believing the truth and holding fast to his teachings. Now, in chapter 3, this becomes an important focus. Paul has been peering into the future. He's foreseen and foretold both the revelation of Christ on that last day, as well as the rebellion of Antichrist, which the Thessalonians were already experiencing. And, as Mark alluded to in his time during prayer, Uh, are ever-present. We are living in a world that is controlled under the control of Satan and his minions, his demons are ever-present everywhere. Spiritual battle. But Paul also says that's even going to expand even more before the day of judgment. He also indicated that meanwhile, although the outbreak of lawlessness is being restrained somewhat, yet the secret power of lawlessness is already at work in the world. 
So in this ambiguous situation in which both evil is operative but yet being held in check, the question becomes, what is the responsibility of Christian people? How should we behave in view of the present tension as well as in view of the final termination? And Paul's answer concerns divine revelation. During this interim period in which we are living, between when Christ lived on earth and ascended, and when He'll return to judge the world, while He is absent from the world, God has not left us, His people, without a guiding light and a compass. We're to be people of the book. And now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to see how the responsibility of the church is to make sure that we grow both extensively by the spread of the gospel and intensively by our own obedience to the gospel. Each of those is incomplete. They're unbalanced without the other. We can't just focus on everything out there and forget about our own need for spiritual growth. Nor can we live our lives as if we are focusing on our belly button and forget about all the others that are around us. And both also demand time. World evangelization isn't something that's going to happen overnight. And church and spiritual formation or growth is ongoing. It's an everyday task. So let's look at chapter 3 and see what he says. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He'll establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day, that we may not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would not we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. Did you hear that? Four times in these verses that I just read, 
Paul uses some form of the word command. Either that we command or this command. And in the next few verses, he'll talk about the person who does not obey. As we begin to dig into the text, I want you to notice how Paul calls for the church to respond in three ways. So once again, here's the question that faces us. In this current situation of tension, a situation where there's a lot of ambiguity, where evil is both operative but somehow still being held in check, how should we behave? And the answer, according to Paul, first of all, is to be obedient. Be obedient to the Word of the Lord and the tradition that you received. Verse 1 and verse 6. Now that phrase, the Word of the Lord, has already occurred back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. There Paul said, the Word of the Lord rang out. Here, he is longing that it spread rapidly. In both cases. He's referring to the spreading, the broadcasting of the Gospel. And in both cases, he's careful to define the Gospel as the message that is the Lord's. Spreading the Word. I'll tell you what, very few things thrill me any more than to have somebody send me a text like I received this week and said, Hey, I met somebody out at Willow Slough named Joe who said he's coming to church. And then they even, words of more praise from Lisa, and I think we're going to see you there Sunday too. Uh, to hear that people are talking about the church. And what the church means to them and the positive things that the church is doing. You see, in both cases, Paul's careful to define the gospel, but though he also says, although it's been entrusted to him, to me, for Thessalonians 2.4, he said it didn't originate with him, but with God. And he knew this. And so did the Thessalonians. I hope that there's never a moment when you are confused between what my opinions are and what the Word of God says by the way that I'm teaching. I hope that I am very clear with this is what the Bible says. And I might be wrong. I'm human. I'm sure, as I've said many times, when I get to heaven, Peter, Mark, John, Paul... Somebody's going to say, come on, something, let's go for a walk. The Thessalonians knew that it was not the Word of men, but as it actually is, the Word of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And it was effectively at work in them as the believers. And the word the Apostle uses in this chapter for tradition, that's not... Uh, to say the, the tradition of the elders, 
Now what Paul is saying is he's talking about what he had received, what was passed on to him there in verse 6. You know, in our day, their mere mention of the word tradition is enough to raise question in the minds of those of us that are a part of the independent Christian churches and churches of Christ. Uh, You know, we don't go by the traditions of the church. Well, yes we do. Yes, we do. It was made evident to me how important that is too when Eric came to me one day and said, Dad, you know I never realized when I started studying theology how much of what I believe came to me as I was growing up under the teaching of Grandpa and under you and under the churches that I was a part of. The traditional way that we bring God's Word to light on situations. Someone might raise the question, didn't Jesus Himself reject the tradition of the elders in order that the Word of God might have precedent? Yes, He did. But what Paul is referring to is not something that is man-made. He's referring to something that was given by Jesus Himself. Remember, the New Testament wasn't in existence yet when Paul is writing. In fact, Paul's writings are some of the very first documents that that were included in what we now have as the New Testament. Some of the oldest writings that we have. Jesus and Paul were referring to different traditions which had a different origin. The Jewish oral traditions which Jesus rejected, He very plainly called the traditions of men. The way they were interpreting things. And so, we have all of those statements that Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, the oral tradition, but I say to you, here's what God was really saying making sure that we understand the difference. One man wrote this, It's no contradiction that Jesus repudiates tradition and Paul champions it. Paul's tradition agrees with Jesus' rejection since they are both opposed to human tradition. We need to have good solid reasons to ever change what the church has taught for hundreds of years. And that's why I have stressed to you last Sunday especially and in teaching that I've done other times for 1,800 years the church did not teach a rapture like that that's taught in the books left behind and in the movie. Not there in the teaching of the church. That first came in 1830. Now, You're wise people. Was the church honestly that ignorant of God's Word for 1,830 years before that woman put herself into a trance and had that dream about a rapture of the church before a tribulation? I don't think so. I don't think so. The standard should always be the words of the Bible. The pattern that we've been given. 
the foundation for the church to be what the church is called to be. The Word of the Lord as it comes to us in the writings of the early church, the Bible, and what the church has taught to be the core of the gospel message passed down to us. Secondly, Paul calls for us as a church to be busy, but not busy bodies. Having prepared his readers for the desired response of obedience to the word in the first five verses, now in verse 6, Paul addresses the second major problem of importance to him at the time of his writing, namely the problem of Christians living both disorderly lives and also idle lives. Paul moves from the need to spread the word in the world to the need to obey the world, word in the world. From evangelism to obedience. And so from an affirmation of the Lord's faithfulness to His word to an affirmation of His authority in and through the word. There's something fundamentally inconsistent Something really strange. Something even abnormal about Christians who share the word with others without disre- without, uh, with, excuse me, while disregarding it in their own lives. How do they do that? For some people, it's merely saying I'm a Christian when people see the way they're living. I can do it today because I don't have my cowboy boots on. I have old-fashioned shoes that have ties and tongues. Isn't that what we call that piece of leather? Now let me tell you this. No matter what the tongue in my mouth says to you, the two tongues in my shoes outvote it. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It doesn't matter what I say as a person if what I am doing contradicts what I say. The particular issue to which Paul demanded obedience concerned the idol. Loafers, who were the third group disturbing the church. After the persecutors, chapter 2, I mean chapter 1, after the false teachers, chapter 2, now, Paul is writing about the idol, idlers, and he did it in the first letter as well. As we saw earlier, they were playing truant from work. And although some commentators have held that they were temporarily lazy or sponging on the generous members of the church, and others have held that they just believed in the Greek disdain for manual labor in and of itself, It seems that both of those were probably there, but also there were a majority of those who were just giving up their jobs, selling their possessions, because they believed the Lord was going to come at any minute. That's been repeated often in history. Back in the 1800s, there was a group, and it's known as, you can Google it, just Google the Great Disappointment. And you'll get them. It was a group called the Millerites. They numbered literally in the hundreds of thousands. But as the predicted date drew near when their leader said that the Lord was going to return, 
a portion of them quit their jobs, gave up their possessions, and under, utterly convinced that it was eminent and sure, they went to this one place all together and just sat and waited. And then when Miller, their leader, their founder, realized that Christ didn't return on that day, he recalculated and settled for October the 22nd of 1844, and when that date also passed without the Lord's return, his followers abandoned the movement and Miller himself retired into relative obscurity and died a few years later. Here's the, here's the thing that really upsets me about this. These people, many today who are still alive, many today who still have audiences are false prophets according to what the Bible said. Because, for instance, Lahay and Jenkins believed that the Lord was going to come before the year 2000, and they said that. And they prophesied that. And it didn't happen. And yet people listen to them still. And they are false prophets because their prophecy did not come true. Paul had told those idlers in Thessalonica in the first letter, get back to work. Find a job. Don't sit around and do nothing. But evidently, his teaching hadn't been heeded. And what's striking now is not so much the instructions which Paul issues, but the authority with which he does it, as I shared already. Four times, and then a fifth time in the next verses, Paul alludes to language regarding to commands and obedience. By the way, these verses contain some of the most important teaching in the New Testament on the, church, the, the topic of church discipline. How should we as a local Christian community handle a situation in which one or more of our members are guilty of serious misbehavior? To be sure, many churches do nothing. The purpose of any and all church discipline should be positive. It should be constructive. It's not to humiliate, still less to destroy the people. It's rather to instill a feeling of shame. Shame is not a bad feeling if you've done something wrong. But there are people who have no shame over anything. To instill that shame, verse 14, uh, that is to shame them into repentance for the past with the hope that a change of lifestyle will occur in the future. Additionally, Paul's intention is not that the person be excluded from the community, but reinstated. He says, don't treat him like an outsider, but like a brother. And Jesus had made this plain by saying that if an offender listens to reproof, then you've won your brother over. But notice what he goes on to say in verses 13 to 18. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. 
If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace give himself, himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You see, the intent of Paul's instruction is for them to continue doing good. And he has clarified three distinct ways in which he's brought that to them. His instruction by word, his life in terms of example, and then also the letters that he has written to them. Combination of verbal teaching, visual example, and written instruction. Different methods, but listen to me. The same message. There's some ways, folks, that we need to start thinking outside the box. Not to change our message. But how can we change some of our packages of delivery? our methods that we use so that we can reach those who we're not reaching. And we got a lot of room for them. I mean, you're not going to be crowded if we get another 30 or 35 people coming and sitting in here with us. And the key, the key is love. That's the only way we can do authentic, sincere good. The serious division between those who were workers and the loafers was threatening to split the church. And there was a real possibility that disciplinary action would have to be taken. And so Paul lays out how to go about that to restore them with the hope that they would change their way. But then he continues with something that's half prayer, half wish. First, may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every way. Verse 16. Secondly, that the Lord will be with you. It's one thing to receive the peace of Christ as a gift. It's another to enjoy the presence of Christ Himself in the midst of us, all of us, working together. And third, he prays for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with us. Grace. That's what we need. We need to be frogs forever relying on God's grace for our salvation. And grace, the unmerited favor of God that secures and bestows salvation freely that epitomizes Paul's gospel. And this must be why at this point, having thus far dictated this letter, he takes the pen of the scribe in his own hand and he writes his final grace wish saying, here is the distinguishing mark in all of my letters. This is how I write. I want you to know this is authentic. It genuinely comes from me. You can't read 
the last three verses of this letter without earnestly desiring for contemporary churches what Paul desired for those Christians at Thessalonica. And so the answer becomes how do we as the people of God relate to the Word of God? And the answer is simple. We become obedient to it. We become obedient to it. And what he's written uh, should remove our narrow-mindedness. It should remove prejudice. We should all be put to shame. And we should all be challenged to to develop a global vision and a commitment to evangelize all people. I was aghast. I truly was. When I heard a young woman who is mixed, her mother black from Central Africa, her father white. I was aghast when I heard her say how somebody came up to her and in a very negative way made references to blacks, not knowing that she was mixed and half black herself. And Paul's repeated commands with their expectation of obedience also condemn those churches whose attitude toward the Word of God appears to be subjective and selective. Well, I know what the Bible says, but I believe. We can't wander at random through the Scripture choosing a verse here and choosing a verse there like a gardener picking flowers. As we wait, as we watch for the return of the Lord and the revelation of Christ, here's my question. Can we say from the heart, let the Word of the Lord speed ahead and be honored throughout the Word. Let the Word of the Lord be honored and obeyed here in our church. For then, fully committed to the Lord and His Word, we can humbly expect to enjoy in our day His peace, His presence, and His grace. So here's my challenge for you in closing. It actually comes from an old commentator by the name of Lightfoot, way back in the 1800's. He said we need to be striving for the peace that is comprehensive. To be experienced through all times, in every way, and among all the Christians to whom the Lord's presence is promised. May the God, the Lord of peace, bring us His peace. And may we dwell in that peace. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us when we have not lived in accord with what we profess and what we teach. Forgive us when we have allowed our prejudices to overrun our mouths and and to say things in haste, not knowing the harm that they are doing to people. Use us for your service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment this morning is Trust and Obey, for there's no other way. Let's stand and let's sing.